0: Welcome to Professor's Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richman. Professor's Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy curriculum and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry, we engage in conversation with colleagues, and we attune to students' experiences all of which not only improves our teaching, but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Dr. Lane Scales, professor in the Diana R. Garland School of Social Work at Baylor University. Dr. Scales has served in many roles at Baylor, including teaching on the faculty of the School of Education, facilitating Baylor's Summer Faculty Institute, and for many years as Associate Dean in the Graduate School, focusing on graduate student professional development. In 2016, Dr. Scales was named a Baylor Master Teacher, the university's highest recognition for teaching excellence. We are delighted to welcome Dr. Scales to the show to discuss authenticity in teaching, relating to your students as whole people, and much more. Well, Lane Scales, thank you so much for joining our show today. It's a pleasure to have you on.
1: Thanks, Christopher. It's great to be here. I love to see that the ATL is branching out into podcasting.
0: Yes, we're trying, trying some new things during this pandemic era where we're trying to connect with folks and still have the conversations that we sort of we wish, wish we could have over coffee and, and lunch with our colleagues, but this is perhaps a reasonable substitute for that. Uh, I'd like to begin just by asking you to say a bit about your your own career in teaching. What are the roles, the settings in which your own teaching has developed? How do you how do you sort of tell that story?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, like many faculty, I began teaching in college um, as a grad student, as a doctoral student at the University of Kentucky. And uh, I had some wonderful mentors and guides and many of my guides were other doctoral students who had gone before me and shared tips, just sort of in the office in an informal setting. But it was through that experience that I really learned the power of a conversation community or a learning community, some call it, you know, for faculty members to just have a place to talk together. And then after I graduated, um, you know, the rest of my career has been a balance of administration and teaching. So I've had faculty roles in which uh, a big part of my day, I might be released 50% or something from my teaching to do administration. So uh, I went to Palm Beach Atlantic College in West Palm Beach, Florida, and ran a service learning program Uh, for all of the students uh, there, their undergraduates were required. I went there um, as an uh, ABD, you know, before I finished my PhD, uh, but also taught, taught in um, sociology and what we call Christian social ministries, Um, went to Stephen F. Austin State University from there and was already in Texas when um, my dear teacher and mentor, Diana Garland, Uh, came to Baylor in 97, 98, somewhere in there. And she came to Baylor to start a master's in social work. And uh, because she had been my teacher and I had learned so much from her, in fact, really been inspired uh, to teach by by Diana, um, I wanted to come and join. And so, you know, a new program meant new faculty lines. And so I came in 1999 to Baylor and um, um, came first to the school of social work, but because I have this strange thing that my master's is in social work, but my doctorate's in higher education. So I've actually served on the faculty of uh, higher education in our school of education uh, for about a decade as well. So those two schools would be my home schools. And then a role that I, um, I took on in uh, as I got into faculty development was working with doctoral students who are, you know, what we call future faculty. And that came through an administrative role as associate dean in Baylor's graduate school. And again, you know, a new program, we didn't really have much in place. Departments were doing things, but we didn't have much uh, across the university. And Larry Lyon, uh, the dean had a great vision for um, developing our doctoral students in that way Um, to become future faculty, and that would be my role, is helping them learn to teach. Uh, The role quickly expanded into other student life kinds of things, such as graduate student housing, and uh, organizations, and clubs, and um, programs on faith and learning, you know, so it grew, but um, I did that until just recently. In the last couple of years, I've returned as a faculty member to the School of Social Work, which is where I serve now.
0: We all, as, as any good teacher knows, we learn by teaching. So I'm wondering what you learned about the professoriate and about teaching from helping graduate students um, evolve into those and develop into those roles?
1: Mm, yes. Um, well you know, as I first began that work, which was around 2004, I believe, I spent a lot of time just remembering what it was like to be that doctoral student. And I, f- I found um, the same things I went through, uh, you know, that's what our doctoral students are facing. There's a lot of pressure because you, um, you're in a doctoral program, you're trying to prove yourself, um, you're, you're young, you're facing all of these challenges. And then when you go into the classroom, often with very little experience, there's pressure from you know, your peers and from the department and from the undergrad students themselves to do a good job. And, and yet often you haven't had much preparation. You're, you're imitating what you've seen others do. So just to go back and remember that sense of uh, desire to do a great job an earnestness, uh, you know, to want to learn to do this, but lack of preparation. So that, you know, inspired me to find the best tools, the best readings, the best um, opportunities, uh, you know, that we could provide for students uh, to, to learn and prepare themselves. Um, so learning about their vulnerability. And then I feel like one of the most important lessons that I did not learn as a doctoral student, it took me much longer, I didn't learn it till I'd been a faculty member till quite some time, um, was to, to find your authentic um, self to find your own way of, of packaging your gifts and the things that you're good at, and turning that into a teaching self. Uh, if that makes sense, that um, I think we imitate the teachers we've seen. And in in my graduate work, so I went to a seminary where the teachers were silver-haired men over 50 uh, who stood at the front of the room and expounded on the very wise (laughs) things they'd learned in their scholarship. And when I tried to imitate that, I would fall short, right? Because I am, I am not a gentleman and a scholar by any means. And so I floundered um, in my early days to, to try to figure out if I, I knew I couldn't imitate that, but what do I have? You know, who is Lane Scales and what does she have that could be packaged into a teaching Um, you know, purpose. So figuring that out came late to me. If I could do one thing for doctoral students, it would be start them on that journey earlier and help them in their doctoral years figure out their things that they bring. And so that's a lot of what my classes, my workshops, my conversations, my mentoring with doctoral students is about, you know, what are your, your particular things that you do well, and and how do we develop your teaching style from that?
0: One of the activities that I I love doing with faculty and in, in faculty development workshops is what you're mentioning here, teaching styles, and there's a number of different uh, rubrics and types of literature to, to to categorize this, but the one that I've used is Anthony Groscia, uh, who wrote in the 90s about teaching styles and the ways that Styles can overlap and that sort of thing, but the the takeaway is always that there's there's not one right way to do teaching. Mm-hmm. There are strengths and weaknesses to every every style that you that uh, a particular instructor might bring, and it's more just about self awareness of those of those things.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: So I also think about this issue of authenticity, and I've been I've been pondering this more too for those of us who do any reading in the scholarship of teaching and learning there is this increasing tendency towards best practices or evidence based teaching and i'm beginning to sense in my own self a bit of tension between that push towards best practices and authenticity as you're as you're putting it here too so i'm wondering if you if you feel that tension too or 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 how you might resolve that
1: Yes, that's a great, uh, a great question. Um, I, I think you're right that we need to be freed from this idea that there is one way of doing it. Um, and yet people who have found a good way become you know, evangelical about it, and everybody wants to share their way as if it's the best way. And maybe it is the best way for them. Um, But, you know, a book that, you know, it's been out a while now, uh, Ken Bain's What the Best College Teachers Do, I think books like that and articles like that free us from that idea that there's, there's one best practice, because what, what Bain does, and you, uh, you know, the title could be a, a little bit misleading, What the Best College Teachers Do, you think, oh, there's a recipe, let me open this book and see what the recipe is. And what Bain does is he shows us many different ways of teaching and all of these, you know, he interviews award-winning teachers and they're all so different. They're so different in how they execute uh, and how they plan and uh, how they respond to students. They, he pulls out some themes, some things they have in common, but that book, you know, and I usually always try to get that in the hands of doctoral students or something like that, Uh, that, that frees us from the idea that there is a, you know, a best practice. So I would, you know, in that tension, I would resist the best practices. Not, that's not to say we can't, uh, you know, we certainly need to come together and have conversation about what's working for me. And I want to share it with you. But uh, let's not, let's not label too many things best. Uh, Because the other thing is the changing nature of the, you know, the trends and so forth. So what was considered best in the 1990s when I started up uh, with faculty development, uh, you know, might not be considered best today.
0: And speaking of award-winning teachers, you were too modest to mention this when you you began talking, but you you have been named a Baylor Master Teacher here at uh, Baylor University. I think this was what 2016. Is that right?
1: Yes, yes.
0: So say a little bit about what what that award means to you personally, and and if and if you've got other thoughts about what kind of what teaching awards do what their purpose is in the academy.
1: Yes, yes. Um, so. Uh, I don't know if our listeners uh, have any background on what the award is, but it's, it's given uh, every four years. So it's, uh, it's not given yearly, but it is Baylor's, I guess, pinnacle award for teaching. And I had heard about it ever since I first came to Baylor 21 years ago. um, And the legendary teachers who were called master teacher, um, people like Ann Miller, um, Jim Vardaman, and then I went to church with two master teachers, Bob Baird and Tom Hanks. And so I felt privileged to, to see them teaching Sunday school. You know, these are wonderful churchmen in addition to being uh, wonderful Baylor teachers. And I saw them teaching in a very different context. So I'd always uh, heard about this uh, these legendary people and knew some of them. So, you know, there's, the, there's this uh, immediate experience of being Uh, So honored to be counted among them. But I think what it did for me and what awards can do is it it set me about my next challenge. Um, That's not to say I've mastered everything there is about uh, about teaching, but it's like, okay, this is um, this is quite an honor. What can I explore next? And for me, it was right around that time that I set my new goal as being uh, online teaching. I uh, I sort of stumbled into online teaching. I'm I'm not a person who embraces technology. I thought it was probably something for young people, um, but Baylor really was going to uh, expand its uh, its graduate student or, or yeah graduates programs in online frontier. And I was curious about it. What really drove me to try it was I was teaching doctoral students. And when they graduated, they were almost always going into something where they would have to teach an online class. Some of them were already doing it again with no preparation. Their alma mater would call them up and say, you're a doctoral student at Baylor. Will you teach online for us? And I felt like I needed to know, I needed to be able to equip them. So I called uh, uh, John Singletary, Dean of the School of Social Work. And I said, do you, do you have a class that you would let me teach online? And he trusted me and I worked really hard to, uh, to learn everything I could. I taught myself, uh, I did my first semester. Um, lots and lots of uh, reading and talking with others. And by the end of that semester, it had turned out pretty well. Um, and, uh, and I thought this is something that I enjoy so much more than I thought I would. And I felt prepared to help others uh, to do it. And so now I'm in this, this sort of new phase of not only teaching online myself, but uh, breaking into faculty development of helping um, other teachers who are teaching online, I do that in the School of Social Work. That's that's part of my uh, official role, um, and, uh, an administrative role there. But I also am starting to do that across uh, across campus, as you know, uh, often in partnership with the ATL.
0: So, what are you learning from faculty who are teaching online? What are their What are their concerns? What are their What are their successes?
1: Well, you know, as you know, with the pandemic, we've had a huge influx of online teachers and many who who had to suddenly do this in the middle of the spring semester without preparation. And so there's been a bit of a, a you know, a panic about it. But what that's brought is a a large desire uh, and interest for people to, to know about it and to be equipped. Um, so the opportunity has been, uh, has been wonderful. I, I experimented with something this summer called the Online Teaching Commons. Uh, I had been doing this in the School of Social Work and we opened it up to Baylor faculty. And what the, the Commons is, is a, a, a space to talk about what we're doing. And it's also, um, you know, it's not just what I tried that works, but what I'm worried about and what I'm afraid to try. And then as a group, you know, in that community conversation, it always comes back to that. Uh, we we bolster each other up. We give each other um, uh, uh, tips and hints, and then uh, give each other courage to try something, and then come back next week and tell us how it went. And so I think the thing that, that people worry uh, a lot about in online teaching is how do I build relationships? This is particularly true for, for teachers, uh, and I am one of them that feel, feel like you know, their, their best teaching comes out of a relationship with their students, but also their students peer-to-peer relationships with each other. And people cannot envision how this is done online um, for me, in the School of Social Work, we, we hold synchronous meetings every week. So we come to class on Zoom. We are together face-to-face, and that, uh, that touch point is key to building relationships. But a lot of it, you know, that I've just had to figure out and I'm helping others figure out is um, how do we use online spaces in between class. Um, and, you know, maybe during our synchronous class as well, how do we give over some of the time um, uh, from, from our content and spend it on uh, getting to know one another? Um, all of those ways that we've, we've kind of experimented with um, help to build relationship. That, to me, has been some of the greatest concern for people. And Baylor's a great place. Uh, you know, as you know, we have wonderful resources and people who are teaching us and mentoring us. To
0: do that well. Yeah, we've said this before, but it really, in so many ways, the teaching online really comes down to intentionality. We, you can't take for granted those things that used to support your teaching, especially when it comes to relationships. I mean, in face-to-face courses, students, they come to class, they're there for five or 10 minutes before class starts, and they're having their conversations, they're developing relationships, they're reminding each other of due dates and things like that, and that just doesn't happen online unless the instructor Mm -hmm. intentionally creates those spaces or those prompts for those relationships and conversations to develop.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So you mentioned a little bit uh, before about your your own kind of slow revelation about authenticity in your in your teaching. Have there any have there been any other major turning points in your practice of teaching your your approach to teaching? Hmm.
1: I'm not sure I would call it as much a turning point as uh, sort of a time of tremendous growth for me. Um, Around the mid-2000s, I took on several things at once, uh, various roles at Baylor that really uh, became just a a space of fertility for me. Again, back to conversations. But I moved into the residence hall with my family. Um, We lived in Coconut, uh, a freshman uh, freshman residence hall um, and uh, our family lived there for six years and this was the experiment this was you know sort of the beginning of it uh, of Dr. Frank Shushock um, the idea of faculty and residents acknowledges that you know we don't just roll up the carpets of the campus when the faculty members drive out of the parking lot at 5 p.m. You know that learning continues and opportunities to be with students continue. And if you want to be a part of this, it's not for everyone. But if you do, um, here's these residential opportunities. And so that was a an extremely fertile time. And I had conversations about this, you know, rather new challenge. I had not done anything like that before um, with people in student life and um, um, and uh, we began to do some research and publication around this idea of residential learning. About the same time, I took on a study abroad, uh, Baylor and Oxford, um, directing that program, which had a similar dynamic of being with students as whole people, you know, all day, every day, through every mood, through every stress, and through the joys as they discover. Uh, a new country and um, new cultures. Um, So much learning there. Um, This was about the same time I began teaching doctoral students uh, and developing future faculty. So just uh, an amazing time of fertility. And I would think, I think the theme that kind of came through all of that is It's something I've read about and understood intellectually, but I could see it more every day. The idea of students as whole people and that if I'm if I'm going to deal with them as a teacher, um, many teachers do. I simply see them in the classroom, consider their uh, intellectual selves and their, you know, their brains and um, and that's it. There's a boundary there. Um, whereas what students long for and what I think, you know, the best teachers do is to approach this as a, as a human being with many, many facets, uh, including, you know, their spiritual and social selves and, and their developmental stage, you know, the, the, the pleasure I had in those years was I was living with undergraduates, teaching master students, um, doing faculty development with doctoral students and so I had the whole range and today's undergraduate student is tomorrow's uh, doctoral student if they stick around Baylor long enough you know and to see that development um, so uh, an incredibly fertile time and I've you know I've transitioned out of most of those programs but uh, I've taken with me a wonderful reflections and memories and lessons I think from from that uh, very fertile time
0: many of the conversations that we're having about teaching during the pandemic I think can be summed up in this theme of of thinking about students as 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 you say as whole people even when you get to something as sort of logistic or technical as, do I require my students to show their camera on when, when they're Zooming into a class? And then that implies all these kinds of questions about, about privacy, about where those students are at, um, when they're in class, because then you really, as a teacher, you really start to realize they're not just brains on a stick, right? They have environments all their own. They have families. They have situations that they are a part of their ecosystems that they are a part of that are mm. not directly related to this to this class and I see I see good good points made in many directions on that that evolving discussion about students showing their webcams on on zoom classes but I just it, when you mentioned that about seeing students as whole people that's what came to mind for me mm. yes so have there been as you think about your Years of teaching. Have there been teaching approaches or techniques techniques that you've tried that just sort of like fell flat that just did not work? Uh either for student learning or for you as an instructor? I mean, you mentioned trying to, you know, trying to imitate the the the, the wise gentleman scholar um that just was not you. Are there any other things that you 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 did earlier in your career that you just don't do now? Mm.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Well, I'll go back to Diana Garland, who uh, was my teacher uh, as a master's student. And one of the things that made Diana so fun is she would take risks. You know, she would just try anything. And sometimes you felt silly uh, carrying out a role play or, you know, uh, something that she would set up for our learning. But then after it was over and everybody had you know, stopped feeling silly about it and we had done it together, she would have this um, very profound unpacking of, um, of uh, you know, what we had learned and, and that's where the learning all crystallized. And, but there was always a, a joy um, and, and humor. So I have tried and I have failed uh, to bring humor to my classes. I think humor, shows up and invites itself um, spontaneously. And so I'm not saying that I haven't ever said anything funny, <laughs> but early in my career, I thought, you know, I mean, and we can pick up a, any of our, our our books, you know, about doing a good lecture or whatever, and it'll say, include humor, um,
0: right.
1: <laughs> you know, but when I prepare humor, you um, i'm just not very good at that and it does fall flat so you know i admire you know my my boss in the grad school dr larry lyon you can watch larry lyon give a presentation and it doesn't matter who that audience is he will have them in stitches at some point that's that's how he relates and um it is i watched him behind the scenes it is well-prepared it is thoroughly practiced and he knows exactly when we're going to laugh and how long we right. should laugh for you know and I can't do it I've tried so yes that's where I've uh, you know in more recent years I've said give up on that lane and look at joy instead and so some of the ways that Diana um, did I, I often do and I, I feel like I can bring joy to my classes but humor uh that's a, that's a different thing
0: that's great i think that's great advice and you, you you try to focus on i think it goes back to the authenticity thing you focus on what yeah. is what is true to you as a as a teacher and not only will you find that those things some of those things just didn't work but because they weren't you students pick up on that too and so for them it becomes a less authentic experience
1: mm-hmm. yes absolutely
0: well Well, we are about out of time. Was there anything else that you wanted to add for us before we let you go?
1: Well, I I know I keep mentioning the ATL, but as you know, the ATL is a very special um, part of Baylor for me, because I had the privilege of being on that first committee with several others who, who proposed to Baylor. We need such a place. And uh, as I broke into faculty development before we had the ATL, we were working on little pockets. You know, Summer Faculty Institute was one of them but there were others um, that we said there needs to be an infrastructure, there needs to be a budget. And so um, just being with you here today and you know, this happens all the time, Christopher. As we have other activities together. um, But just seeing how the ATL flourishes, you know, we're in our 11th year now and uh, what, what you and your colleagues um, do to, to provide this resource for Baylor faculty um, is, is just a wonderful, wonderful gift to get to Baylor. So I would think you know, my, my last words are, are thank you for, for bringing to life you know, the vision that we had those years ago.
0: Well, thank you for your support and your work with the ATL. And thank you for talking with us today and sharing your insights. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Our thanks again to Dr. Lane Scales for joining us today. In our show notes, you'll find links to a couple of resources we mentioned in our conversation, including Ken Bain's What the Best College Teachers Do and Anthony Grosha's work on Teaching Styles. That's our show. Join us next time for Professors Talk Pedagogy.